Hello, welcome to the podcast of Grace Fellowship Church Shrewsbury. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. in Southern York County, Pennsylvania. You can join our morning live stream on Facebook or YouTube. Just search for GFC Shrewsbury. You can find more information about us at gfcshrewsbury.org. We are so excited to bring you this message today, and it is our hope that you will come to know and believe Jesus Christ more fully through it. Well, good morning, Grace Fellowship. Good morning to those of you online. How many of you are wondering, why are we talking about Christmas on November 1st? Anybody wondering? Does Walmart even have their Christmas stuff out yet? We didn't beat them to the punch. So as the video said, over a decade ago, a few pastors gathered together and began to talk about their dilemma at Christmas time, especially Advent. They began to talk about the exhausting season it was and the sense that they all had that they had missed it once again, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. They had been bogged down in the lines at the stores and all of the hubbubaloo that goes along with the Christmas season. What we've made it culturally often causes us to miss what it's really about. So many people drown themselves in a sea of financial debt, endless lists of gifts to buy under the Christmas tree. Many of us struggle to find a true connection uh, between Christmas to-do lists and the true story of Jesus' birth. Many of us are filled with overwhelming stress at Christmas time that often overtakes our true and right worship of God. And the time of year when focusing on Jesus should be the easiest often is the hardest. That shouldn't be. So in 2006, these three pastors got together, um, Chris C., Greg Holder, and Rick McKinley, and they tried to do something different. They actually put in place kind of four posts, stakes in the ground, albeit, and they came together around these tenets with their families and with their congregations and throughout the Christmas season, and thus was born the Advent Conspiracy. Now, Tracy and I in our house church walked through the Advent Conspiracy last year, so I'm not only weeks ahead of you, I'm a year ahead of you. And I'm grateful to be a year ahead of you because this is really a profound change for me personally. I love Christmas time. Anybody with me? Now, how many of the bah humbugs are out there? Just raise your hands and grunt. Go ahead and grunt. Let's see. Yeah. So my mom raised us loving Christmas time. And I I still love Christmas trees and I I love all the ornaments and I I love the packages and boxes and bows and all that kind of stuff. But I want to love Jesus more. And so um, Christmas has been hijacked by the culture, folks. And it's time for it to be redeemed. And by the grace of God, um, we're praying that he will redeem Christmas for us together this year, that he will buy it back from the culture. So we've decided to join in this growing number of kingdom expressions. Literally thousands of churches all over the world have participated in the Advent conspiracy. Now, when we participate in this together, it's not just for this year. It's ongoing until the Lord comes back, that we would actually allow him to transform the way that we see this season so we no longer allow the culture to creep into the church, but we allow the church to penetrate the culture. So why? Why are we starting now? Um, Because we want to be able to apply what we learn this Advent season. Now, I know some of you are way ahead of the rest of us. I won't even ask for a show of hands because it would just be, I don't know, alarming. I'd ask how many of you have already bought all your Christmas presents? And there are some out there with a glee go, I did three months ago. 
And uh, we're not there yet by the grace of God. So hopefully we're catching enough of us to make a change. So would you be kind enough to join me as I pray? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are a God who is so faithful to show us the way out of the messes that we make. Lord, as we will confess throughout this series, we have made a mess of Christmas. You are a savior, and we praise you now that you hear our prayers. Lord, we ask now for your guidance as we look at some of our dearest held thoughts and motives around this season. Help us to surrender ourselves to you and what Christmas has become to you fully. Free us from our self-made prisons, God, so that further glory will be brought to your name. We thank you, Lord, that you are faithful and that your love endures forever. Would you pray this all in the precious name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So, is there a way to make that screen brighter in the back? Or is that just, wow, it's like really going, huh? All right, I'm going to look from here. So, this past year, we've had conspiracy theories run wild. Anybody testify to that? I would ask you now, what's your favorite one? <laughs> what was your favorite conspiracy theory? You know, because conspiracy theories easily prop up in our minds because by nature, we're very suspicious, kind of fearful people. And we see signs of things and we go, oh, something going on there that not everybody's seeing. And I don't doubt that there are evil conspiracies in our culture for sure. But what most of us don't realize is that God longs to conspire with us. You see, God's plan is for a divine conspiracy. It's kind of an interesting word to use. I want you to understand the divine conspiracy is God's work to transform people of any social status or life situation into agents of his kingdom, whom he can empower to bring glory to his name. As willing followers of Jesus, these people recognize that his way is the good way. Can you say those words with me? His way is the good way. The love and the enthusiasm that we have for him and in his way. I'm going to say that again. The love and the enthusiasm that we have for him and his way is our differentness. And this draws other people to follow Jesus Christ. So when you and I walk as lights in a dark world, our passion and love for Jesus is supposed to stand out in such a remarkable way that people go, what's up with him? What's up with her? Why is she like that? How does he have such peace in the midst of such turmoil? How does that person have so much joy in such a stress-filled culture? You see, that's called being set apart. And Jesus calls us to be different. The salt and light in the midst of darkness and death and impurity, we are supposed to live in the world and not be of it. The problem is, often the church doesn't look any different than the culture. I'm going to say that again. The problem is that the church of Jesus Christ often doesn't look any different than the culture. I'm going to teach you again what my brother Frank Weiss taught me years ago. It's called culture creep. And it's when the culture creeps into the church rather than the church infiltrating the culture. Do you understand? We actually buy into cultural norms and we start walking according to the ways of the world. 
But Jesus says, no, I want you to be transformed by the renewing of your mind and to not buy into the patterns of this world, the ways of this world. Folks, I'm here to proclaim to you today that Christmas has been hijacked by the culture. And we've allowed the culture to creep in to what this Advent season is about and what Christmas is about in such a way that we often work and walk just as harried and hurried and upset and angry and stressed out and financially strung out the same way that the culture does. And that should not be true about us, children of God. God has a better way. You see, Jesus came to set the captives free. And yet so often we walk back into these culturally made prison cells. And he says, I've, I've, I've kind of opened the door for you. Like, come on out, be free in me. So, so God longs for us to be part of his divine conspiracy, to be set apart for him. And with him, listen to the definition of conspiracy. To conspire is to act in harmony towards a common or agreed upon end. So when we think of conspiracy theories in the culture, we think of people in dark rooms somewhere coming up with a plan and they're all in harmony agreeing to enact that plan together. Do you understand that God wants us to conspire with him? To have us act in harmony with him so that we might walk with him in every area of life. This conspiracy means that God calls us to give our lives to him, to surrender completely so we might live more fully by walking with him. Now listen, this means allowing him to challenge and change our most basic assumptions, traditions, and practices in every area of our lives. It means allowing Jesus Christ to make us uncomfortable, even at Christmas time. To challenge the things that we hold so dear, even if they are killing us. And this is called the Advent Conspiracy. It's God screaming to us or whispering to us in the midst of this season, I have a different way for you to do this. You don't have to do it this way anymore. Well, how do we conspire at Christmas time. These pastors came up with four areas, and I'd actually like to like us to read them together if we would do that. Let's start with worship fully, spend less, give more, love all. Now look, um, spending less, worshiping fully, giving more, these are all principles that God really is longing for us to take from his person. See, what happens is that we miss the worship. We spend way too much and give way too little. When I mean give way too little, I'm talking about giving what matters most. Do you know, parents, I want to talk to you about your kids. Like, they do love toys. There's no question about it. That's a good thing to give your child a toy. But can I tell you, if you're giving them a bunch of plastic and you're not giving them your time, not giving what matters most. Spouses, if you're working two jobs and you're trying to save enough money to buy that Christmas present that somehow communicates, I love you enough to spend this much money on you, but you're not spending intimate, loving, bonding time with your spouse, you are not giving what matters most. You see, what matters most is relationship, folks. And Christmas has been hijacked for us because what we've bought into is that what matters most is going out spending a bunch of money that we don't have 
to somehow earn love from people us down and robs us of our true worship. Now, some of you are saying, well, I don't really do that. Well, praise God you don't. But I want to tell you that there is still room for you to worship more fully. For you not only to spend less, but for you to give more and for us together to love all. That means this time of year, we should be thinking of those that don't have the things that they even need. So at Grace Fellowship Church, we're going to be adopting two ministries this year for this Advent season. We're going to be adopting a local one that's unknown to us yet, but it will be known to us soon, I believe, and then made known to you. And they'll also be adopting an international one together so that we can give together to those who do not have even what they need. We're going to conspire with God as a church together at Christmas time this year. And I will pray that that God will change your Christmas into something far more meaningful than it's ever been. I can tell you for Tracy and I, that was true last year. And I'm going to share a little bit about that as we move forward. But this has to start in our hearts right now. So today we begin this journey by talking about worshiping fully. So it has to start in us. We must allow God to challenge our most basic assumptions about the way, about life and about where life is found. So I'm going to say that again. We have to allow God to challenge us. How many of you like to be challenged in your opinions and your attitudes? You like it when somebody comes up to you and says, I love you, but you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. And immediately we mount this defense inside that wants to somehow justify our actions. Remember, Jesus is our justifier. So when he comes into your house, your heart, he starts making a mess of stuff. He loves you. He loves you. He does. He loves you so much, but he loves you so much he doesn't want to leave you where you are. So he challenges you and he challenges the most basic assumptions you have about life and where life is found. Today we're going to take a look at the person specifically of Mary in the scriptures at Christmas time. We're going to look at Luke chapter 1, 26 through 55. This is the mother of Jesus. Now look, you've got to understand something. Mary is a teenage girl. She's a Jewish teenage girl. She's probably about 12 or 13 years old. By most estimates, that's how old she is. Joseph's not a whole lot older, maybe 15. She has dreams about the way life ought to be. She grew up in a culture where marriage was held in high esteem and children even more so. If you didn't have children, you were barren. That supposedly was often perceived as being a curse from God. Maybe you had sin to cause something wrong. I don't know. But I do know this. She was a girl and she had dreams for her life. And she had dear and basic assumptions about the way life was supposed to go and where life was found. Certainly she had dreams of being with Joseph, her betrothed. Certainly she had dreams about how they would consummate their relationship in physical and emotional and spiritual intimacy. Certainly she had dreams about having children with Joseph and how they would interact in the community and how things would go. But can I tell you something? God rocked her world. And God is the business, he's in the business of rocking your world as well. I'm going to start in verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth 
a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now let's remember, this is Jesus' name, Emmanuel, God with us. God is with you, but he's always asking you the question. He's saying, I am with you. Will you be with me? Will you be with me? That's what we're asking for at Christmas right now. As Jesus is with us, he is Emmanuel. Will we be with him? Listen to this verse. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. She was troubled, greatly troubled. She said, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word be fulfilled. Oh my, what a fertile soul. May your word be fulfilled. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end, i.e. this is the long-awaited Messiah. Verse 34, how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm still a virgin, i.e. I've never been with a guy. How How am I going to give birth to the Messiah? 35, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. 36, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I'm going to say that again and then I want you to say that with me. For no word from God will ever fail. Can you say that with me? For no word from God will ever fail. You understand if you go back up to verse 39, she says, may your word be fulfilled. Now the angel is just affirming what she already believes to be true. No word God God will ever fail. 38, I am the Lord's servant, she says again. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. 39, at that time Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. 41, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb. This is John the Baptist. He's the first one other than Mary to identify Jesus as Messiah. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit In a loud voice, she proclaimed, blessed are you among women and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would refill his promises to her. Now listen, Mary and Elizabeth in real ways are carrying real babies made of real flesh and blood. And these are the people of John the Baptist and Jesus the Messiah. So in a very real sense, they were honored to do something that none of us will ever be honored to do. They are unique among women that they had these roles to carry these godly men into the world. The God-man, Jesus himself, 
and then the one who would point to the God-man, John the Baptist. This is something that has never happened to anybody else before. But this happened to them so that we too, in a really very real sense, would carry in ourselves the very presence of God. Do you understand that Mary is really not very far from a picture of you? You understand that when you receive Jesus Christ into your life, he comes and makes his home in you. The Holy Spirit fills you with himself. You are God's temple. And in a very real way, Mary was blessed by God to bring Jesus incarnate into the world. Do you know that you are called to the incarnational life? Do you know that you are to give birth to the Spirit of God as you walk in the world around you and that Jesus himself is supposed to shine through you in beautiful and powerful ways? And that that presence of Christ then is to give new birth and new life to others around you? Do you understand that you carry the very presence of God? What a gift. Many of us know this as we walk here on planet Earth that often, and I know this, like I'm so busy that I just keep my head down and I forget to pay attention to the fact that Jesus takes me nowhere by accident. When I go into the Walmart, when I go into Starbucks, which I don't anymore because I don't even like their coffee anymore. But now we're brewing our own. I don't know why I'm talking to you about that. But when I go to get my new coffee now or when I go anywhere that Jesus is calling me on assignment to allow his presence to shine through me in powerful and profound ways that touch people's hearts so that they see his love, that they might know him too. And I don't know about you, but this is a dark world to walk in. And often I get caught up in all of the hurry and harriness and I keep my head down and even pay attention that there's people around me. Going to Walmart to pick up something in my mission. But my mission is from God and my calling on my life is actually to be used by him. So we're called to lift our, our hearts and our heads high and we're called to look for people who need to know the love of God. Now, I don't know about you, but at times when I'm in public and I meet somebody and I'm awake enough to see it, that they're alive in Christ and I don't even, they haven't even talked to them. Or maybe it's just a brief exchange and I see in them the very spirit that I have in me. And you know what happens? My heart leaps. Did you ever get, did you ever happen to have that happen to you? Did you ever walk in and you, and you connect with someone and you go, oh, surely she's a believer. Why? Because she's like shining like a star in a dark and depraved generation. And all of a sudden, your heart connects with that person's heart, your spirit with that spirit, because you share the Holy Spirit and you go, are you a follower of Jesus? And she or he goes, yes, I proudly am. Praise God. I ran into a guy like this um, yesterday. I was with my youngest son, Noah, and we were going to look at dulcimers. I picked up a mountain dulcimer um, the other day, and I'm learning to play the mountain dulcimer, which I'm very excited about. But that really wasn't the mission. See, I went into this little dusty shop up in York and I started talking to this guy and I noticed one of his CDs sitting there and I had struck up a conversation with him and I saw the CD and I said, are you a follower of Jesus? He goes, all the time, all the time, man. And you know what it did? It created this beautiful connection in the Holy Spirit because we are one in Christ. You understand, we are a team. We are a family. 
So in a very real sense, you and I carry the presence of God. And in a very real sense, if you're acquainted at all with what I'm talking about, you understand that when spirit sees spirit, when God's spirit ignites God's spirit in somebody else, you have this leaping in your heart. And you understand that God is the one, in fact, who is connecting you, literally spirit to spirit. This is the way we are to live as children of God. So while Mary is unique among people and women in carrying the literal body of Jesus inside of her, we too are God's vessels for the Son of God incarnated. The word goes on and Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Can you hear her inflection? Can you get, just put, put your hand on her pulse? Her heart is beating fast for the one who has blessed her immeasurably more than she could ever ask or imagine. Why? Because God lives in her. Our response should be every bit as full and gracious and passionate. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. Do you ever thank God for a scattered mind? How many of you would say that you have been scattered in your inmost thoughts? Do you ever think it might be because you're proud? I've been scattered in my inmost thoughts recently. It's a unique form of pride. It's called codependency. It leaves me believing that I can change other people's lives, even those that I deeply care about, even those that I love the most. And so what I get do is I get kind of wrapped up into thinking that somehow I can make a plan for somebody else's life. And that plan can be executed because I am the one who made the plan. Doesn't that sound a lot like God? That's a unique form of pride. When you start getting on, on somebody else's side of the fence and start meddling in their yard and trying to fix their stuff, that's a unique form of pride. Because now you're playing God. So can I tell you that my thoughts have been scattered somewhat recently when I get into this place? And what is it does? It drives me to my knees. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for scattering my inmost thoughts when I am proud. Thank you that you give grace to the humble, but you oppose the proud. Why does he oppose the proud? Because he loves the proud. You see, he opposes the proud because he wants to humble the proud. He wants to bring us low so that we might look up. This is what he says. She says here, he has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he's lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. I imagine those three months were a remarkable time, don't you? The one carrying John the baptizer and the one carrying the savior of the world, spending three months together. I would imagine their babies leapt together for joy more than once. 
So I want to look at verses 30, um, 29 and 38 specifically. Um, do I have the right slide up there? No, I don't. I'm going to go back. Yeah, okay, good. So 29 and 38. So Mary was greatly troubled at his words, and yet later on we hear her say, but may your word be fulfilled in me. Mary knew that in addition to being troubling, God's word to her was life-giving. So look, you've got to understand this. If we're going to allow God to challenge us at the most basic assumptions that we have about life and where life is found, God's word to you is going to trouble you. Now God's word to you will comfort you too, But God's word to you will trouble you. I don't know about you, but I don't really like that part. Often I open the scripture and I'm troubled by the word of God. And I want to say, is there anybody else up there I can talk to? I don't really like this word. I don't really like the word that tells me to be humble when I think I'm right. I don't like the word that says I'm supposed to love my enemies. I, I don't really like how they're supposed to bless those that persecute me. Those things do not come naturally to my flesh, and I really don't like them at all. Mary was a 13-year-old girl who had dreams for her life. She was a Jewish girl. She was betrothed to be married. She had dreams. She maybe thought, well, maybe I'll be the most beautiful bride ever. Maybe she thought, this is going to be a joyful and wonderful Jewish wedding. She dreamed, I know she dreams, but along comes God and he changes it all. Can you imagine how Mary felt telling Joseph? Well, Joe, there's some seemingly bad news and some good news. Which would you like first? Um, Joe, okay, the good news is the Messiah's coming soon. The bad news, well, at least the seemingly bad news, is that I'm pregnant and the Holy Spirit is the one who knocked me up. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not the kind of thing I'd sign up for. That's kind of outlandish. I mean, can you imagine what she faced in Joseph? We know that he was deeply troubled himself when the word of God came to him through her. We know that he went away and being a good man, he silently resolved to divorce her. He decided that in his heart. But he too needed a word from God. An angel appeared to him and said, Joseph, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For what she has conceived is from God, the Holy Spirit. And you will name this child Jesus, because he will save the world from their sins. You understand that Joe needed godly intervention as well. But that intervention troubled him too. So when God speaks a word to you, I know you long, you long for it to always come as water to the parched land of your soul. But God's word will trouble us. We have to understand that while she was troubled, she hears from this angel the truth. No word from God will ever fail. No word from God will ever fail. So Mary believes and she receives. She surrendered herself fully to God as an act of worship. If you really want to know what worship is, you go to Romans 12. Worship is not singing songs. Worship is not just dancing before the Lord. Those are beautiful expressions of worship, but that's not what worship is. Worship is clearly defined in Romans 12. It says this, in view of God's mercy, 
That's Paul saying, I just talked to you for 11 chapters about the grace and goodness of God poured out in the person of Jesus Christ. I have just told you that he has forgiven you of every sin you will ever have or ever have. I have just told you now he's made a way for you to come back to the throne of grace with confidence. In light of God's mercy, offer yourselves as living sacrifices, which is your true act of spiritual worship Period. He goes on to say, no longer be conformed to the patterns of this world, rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, God's perfect and pleasing will. Spend some time with that word. But can I tell you what what it truly means? The language is clear. He says, offer yourselves as living sacrifices. That means you don't just put your money, which is really God's, up on the altar. You don't just put your kids, which are really God's, up on the altar. You don't just put everything you own up on the altar, which it really all belongs to God anyway. You crawl up on the altar yourself. And you lay yourself before God and you say a very simple yet incredibly dangerous prayer. God, have your way with me. Can you say that with me? God, have your way with me. Do you understand this is what Mary's doing? I am your servant. May it be done according to your word. This is the posture of worship before God. And this is what God longs for us to understand. He is good but he's not safe. And if you want to stay safe, if you want to play it safe, you're really not interested in a relationship with God so much. You see, God is not safe. He's going to mess you up, man. He's going to come in and like clean out your house. If you just want everything to stay the way it is, well, I don't know if you're really interested all that much in Jesus. Because he's not a guy who's going to be content with leaving things as they are. She says this, may your word be fulfilled in me. Mary knew that God's word to her, in addition to being troubling, was ultimately, was ultimately going to be life-giving. And so must me. We must continue to surrender ourselves fully to God. Listen, we have to trust his heart. Especially when you cannot trace his hand. When things don't make sense to you that God is doing or allowing to happen, you have to trust his heart even when you can't trace his hand. We must allow God to trouble us and to kind of challenge our most basic assumptions about life and where life is found. And so Jesus makes a mess of things. I love this picture of Jesus making a mess of things in the temple courts, you know. He enters into the temple courts. He sees these people that are selling things in the temple courts. Doves that had a deep connection to poverty. I won't get into that. But the poor are to be cared for in the temple courts. And yet, these money changers have made a mess of the temple courts. Now, this is not unlike what we've done to Christmas, folks. I've got to be really honest with you. We've taken this beautiful, sacred, incredibly celebrative time of the birth of our Savior who came to a poor teenage Jewish couple in a manger, in what basically amounts to a barn, deeply impoverished. And look what kind of mess we've made out of Christmas through consumerism and commercialism. We'll get to those in a few minutes. 
But Jesus enters the temple courts and he is ticked off. Righteous anger. Let me tell you something. Not all anger is bad. God hates stuff and he calls you to hate stuff with him. God doesn't hate people, but he hates sin. Why does he hate sin? Because sin hurts people and God loves people. You got to get it right. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. So you are now this house of God. It's very clear you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God lives in you. And the disciples said at this point, they remembered what the word of God said that troubled them. Zeal for the house of God will consume him. That means God is passionate for you. You're his house. He loves you. He's not passionate against you. He's passionate for you, the word says. So when he comes in and makes a mess, it's because he loves you. We long for you, Lord Jesus, to come into our family now and make a mess of what we have made of Christmas. We ask in the precious name of Jesus that you would rule and reign now over this Advent season and that we would throw down, Lord God, those things that are not of you. and We would put you back at the center. We pray this in Jesus' name. So 21, Jesus enters the temple courts and he drove out all those who were buying and selling there. The dude made a whip. This is the son of the most high God. He made a whip. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling drugs. Doves, not drugs, but doves. So Jesus takes time to make a whip. I'm wondering what the disciples are thinking as they're watching him. What's Jesus doing now? Getting ready to heal another leper? Oh no, the dude's making a whip. What's going on? So he makes a whip. He goes in here. He starts throwing stuff over. He's cracking that whip. He's ticked off. Most Christians would say, that dude really needs a quiet time. I wonder if he's even a believer. This is Jesus himself. And he is so filled with passion for the house of God. He says these words, it is written. Here's the word of God coming into trouble the people of God. The word of God coming into trouble the people of God. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer. My house is a place of communion with the most high God. My house is a sacred place. My house is supposed to be beautiful for the glory of my God. And you have made it into a den of robbers. Do you hear his passion? Do you hear his love for us? Do you hear that Jesus doesn't like sharing his house with any idols at all? Look, the simple message this is that what we need is Jesus plus nothing. Would you say that with me? What we need is Jesus plus nothing. And yet what we do is we say it's Jesus and this. It's Jesus and this. It's Jesus and this. And Jesus says, no, it's just me. My house will be called a house of prayer. This is why in the Proverbs it says things like, better is contentment with little than strife with much. Do you understand what the scripture is saying? Is like, the more you have, the more you think you need. So better is to be content with little, better to live in a shack somewhere with nothing in Jesus than in a castle with a bunch of stuff and without him. You see, the truth of the matter is what we're longing for in our hearts is Jesus. And this means our focus is on our relationship with him above all else. He is supreme and he is sovereign. 
and a cause to let him have his way. Now, I want to ask you a question. Do you know what the fastest growing religion is in our American culture? It's not Islam. It's not Judaism. And it's not Christianity. The fastest growing religion in our culture is consumerism. And I want you to understand that consumerism is a religion. And it has its own statements of doctrine. And it has its own promise of a future hope and peace. It just never delivers on its promises. Or at least not for long. The statements of the doctrines of consumerism are very clear. More is always better. If I just buy the next right fill in the blank... I'm just going to do this with you for a second because I know all of us do this. I have one. If I buy just the next right musical instrument, then I will be happy and fulfilled. Now, what is it for you? If you're brave enough, I want you to say yours out loud because everybody's going to be talking at the same time, so nobody's going to hear yours anyway. If I just buy the next right... I heard boat. No. <laughs> iPhone, that's a good one. Oh, a new iPhone. What is it? What's that, 11 now? 12. 12. <laughs> I pulled out of my drawer the other day an iPod that was like this big. <laughs> I'm just joking. It was like this big. It, it was huge. And I went, I remember rocking that thing. It's all I need till the next iPod came out. Till the next iPod came out, till the next one came out, and then it transitioned to our iPhones, and then it's 1, 1A, 1B, C, 3, 5, 6, oh my gosh, I have the 10XL. I'm just making this stuff up. I don't know iPhones. I'm telling you this, though. When you get an iPhone, often you want the next one. Because it's bigger, it's better, it's faster. And your life will be different. That is the promise of consumerism. If I just buy the next right bicycle, football helmet, Barbie doll, or swing set, then I will be happy, fulfilled, significant, satisfied, important. It doesn't have to be buying it for me. I can buy it for somebody else. If I buy it for somebody else, then they'll truly love me. Then they'll truly like me. Then they'll know that I love them. You see, there's all of these kinds of things that we equate because consumerism has all of its promises. If I just buy an expensive enough gift for someone, then they'll know that I love them. I did this years ago with my parents. My parents, when I got to college, I started finally working a job where I made enough money. Remember when you make above minimum wage and you feel like you're finally in the real world? And so, you know, I went home for Christmas and I decided to, like, put on a credit card a VCR. This is like in 1983. A VCR that was like $500. That's a lot of money in 1983. And I put it on a credit card. Why? Because I wanted my parents to know that I loved them. You see, that's the trap of consumerism. You think that somehow, if something's expensive enough or good enough, then it's finally going to show somebody that you love them. They opened it up on Christmas, didn't pay much attention to it, and it broke three weeks later. And when I went home, and I first thing I asked, how's the VCR doing? Oh, it broke. We just put it in the closet. How about spending some time with us, Jeff? See what I'm saying? Like The things that matter most are not what consumerism tells us matters most. Consumerism tells us that stuff matters most, and the more that we spend, then the more that we'll be happy, the more we'll be fulfilled. It's a religion of promises that always fade and go away, but there's always another promise to come. And yet consumerism is unfortunately what we've allowed to creep into Christmas from the culture. 
So many of us think we're worshiping Jesus at Christmas time when in fact we're not. We're worshiping mammon, the God of money, the God of stuff. This puny God that does not deserve our attention is getting all of our attention. And God wants us to throw that God down. In Matthew 19, Jesus had a rich young ruler that came to him and said, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus loved questions like this, and he always turned it around to be another question. So he said, well, what does the word say? And, you know, the young guy goes through these things, and he says, you know, you're supposed to do this, you're supposed to do this, you're supposed to do this. And he says, all these things I have done. Now, that's where Jesus got him. Because, <laughs> see, that's called pride. No, he hadn't. He hadn't done any of those things. Jesus just raised the bar. He, you know, he said, you've heard it said that you don't take another woman in, like, in adultery. But I tell you the truth, if you've taken a woman into your mind or a man into your mind, you've already done it. Like he raised the bar. So this guy's thinking that he's fulfilled the law. And Jesus looks into his heart and he sees an idol. And the idol is money. And he says this. He says, if you want to be perfect, go sell in all that you have and give the money to the poor. And then come, follow me. You see what he's saying? He's saying, I have a divine conspiracy and I want you, invite you into it with me. But you have an idol that's standing in your soul. And, you, and that idol and I will not agree. We will not work together. You have to throw that thing down so that you can come and follow me. What a beautiful invitation to conspire with God. Jesus knows this guy's in denial. Jesus knows this guy is lying to himself and he wants to invite him into more. The scripture says he went away sad because he had great wealth. So a reminder, first of all, we are this guy. If you're in this room, you are wealthy. Now some of you are going, no, I'm not. Let me remind you, if you have food in your refrigerator, clothes on your back, and a roof over your head, place to sleep, you are richer than 75% of the world's population. You are in the top 25% of the world in terms of your wealth. If you have any money in your bank or in your wallet or even spare change in a dish somewhere, you're now among the top 8% of people in the world in terms of wealth. These are true. So how, how would you answer the question? I mean, if Jesus came to you and he said, so I want you to go sell all that you have and give the money to the poor and I want you to follow me, Would you go away sad? Or would you jump for joy? Would you respond with great glee and say, oh my gosh, Jesus is inviting me to follow him. He's actually wanting to conspire with me in his divine kingdom. Or would you go away sad? I can't tell you if Jesus wants you to sell everything you own and give the money to the poor just to follow him. But I can tell you this. He wants you to be willing to do that if he tells you to do it. Are you willing? Are you willing to hold things loosely enough and worship God fully? Or are you still somehow deceived into thinking that life can be found in the next right purchase? I don't know what it is for you, but I can tell you this, that God does not want to share the house with idols. And how are we to worship fully when we have to start with prayer? Why? Because that's where the problem started. It is written, he said, that my house will be called a house of prayer, and you have turned it into a den of robbers. You have to understand that you have a portable sanctuary in your heart, 
And God longs for you to develop a relationship with him there so that you are working in this place that cannot be shaken. You are walking from this place that is filled with the peace and the glory of God. And the more that you develop that inner sanctuary of the soul, the stronger you will become in him. Why? Because you will always have a hiding place with Jesus. No matter where you go, no matter how insulting people become, no matter who is president in this next election, you will be able to go to that place with Jesus where you can sing, it is well with my soul. Why? Because as Leah said, Jesus is still king. And he is the one in whom we trust. Remember last week? When we take refuge in God, only then, when God alone is our refuge, only then will we never be shaken So we have to develop this communion place with God. We're to pray without ceasing our lives or to be walking temples. The word of the Lord says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will be the one that makes your path straight. Acknowledging him means praying. It's communion. We're called to pray without ceasing. When Jesus asked two of his disciples to hang out and pray for him as he went on to another place to pray because he was always going off and spending time with the Father. And by the way, if Jesus had to do this for effective life and, and love here, how much more do we need to do this, right? So he's going off. He said, stay here and pray for me because he's going on and he's contemplating Gethsemane. He's going to cry out to God. If this can be taken from me, but your will be done, not mine. And he wants these guys to pray for him. He comes back and he finds them sleeping. Jeez. And, and I can tell you, if you read his words, like Jesus was hurt. He goes, can't you even stay awake one hour and pray with me? Then he says these words, watch and pray that you do not fall into temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Boy, this is called preventative prayer. This is the kind of prayer that has to do with you packing your parachute before you jump out of the plane. Anybody ever jump out of a plane here? Just one. No, over here. Awesome. There's some really crazy people in here. <laughs> I've thought about it. I have a fear of heights. There's no way I'm doing that unless Jesus calls me to it. And I, I'm not even going to answer that call if he, if he calls me. But did, did somebody pack your parachute before you jumped out of the plane? Would it be insane for you to try and pack your parachute on the way down? That would be nuts. And yet that's what so many of us do. We get in the middle of Christmas season or in the many, any kind of middle of any season and we say, Lord, I'm coming apart. I'm coming apart. God, help me. I don't know what's going on. And he goes, yes, I will help you, but I wanted to be talking to you before all of this came to pass. He says, watch and pray that you do not fall into temptation. Folks, can I encourage you, if you want Christmas to be different than it ever has been before, will you start praying now? Will you start seeking God now and praying and asking him, Lord, I want this season to be about worshiping you fully. I want this season to be about spending less on myself and buying gifts for people that I think need to impress them. And I want to give more of my time, more of my talent, more of your treasure back to you. I want to love all God. Make my life different, please. You see, now is the time for us to anticipate what is to come. Now, we got to understand it. We're always worshiping something. You were made to worship. You are designed to worship. That's who you are. And you are always worshiping someone or something. 
God wants you to pray so that you can identify these objects of your adoration. Why? So that you can throw them down at his feet. Listen to these words from Joshua. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped, i.e. the cultural gods that you are accustomed to. Throw them down. These are beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites. And the, who's, he's saying these foreign gods, these little puny gods. But then he comes to this line. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Can you say that? It's for me and my house. We will serve the Lord. So you must understand that you're designed to worship something. Worship is really not an option for you and me. You're always worshiping. The question is, who or what are you worshiping? You see, you need God's help in identifying what you're worshiping so you can throw down things and put them in their proper places below God. So how do you know what you're truly worshiping? Let me give you some ideas. Chances are, it's who or what you think about most. So if you're driving down the road and your thoughts kind of default to that position they always default to, what are you thinking about? If you're doing something at home and you're just working and your thoughts default to something, what are you thinking about? Chances are you are thinking that life is found in that because you're trying to work something out. You're, you're focusing in the wrong places. You see your default position is truly what you're trusting in. It's what you're worshiping. It's what you give most of your emotional, spiritual, and physical energy to. What do you give most of your emotional, spiritual, and physical energy to? That, more than likely, is the object of your worship. The object of your worship may not even be someone or something that you like. It may be something you don't like. But you're focusing on it all the time. Do you understand? Like, this is your act of worship. I saw a recent meme that I thought was really, really good. It said, the most expensive thing you can do is to focus on the wrong people. You ever focus on the wrong people? You ever let people um, have like a big room in your head rent-free? You ever let them occupy your thoughts that might even keep you up at night? You are giving power and honor to them that only belongs to God. But you understand, when you, when you occupy your thoughts with something, it becomes your object of hope, and therefore your object of adoration. Maybe you're thinking about your next right purchase. Maybe you're thinking about what you don't have. Maybe you're thinking about maintaining what you do have. This is the problem with having more, is you have to take care of it. And your thoughts go there a lot, so you're thinking about maintaining your stuff. Maybe you're thinking about the next right job or even the next right vacation or maybe the next right boyfriend or the next right girlfriend, maybe the next right husband or the next right wife. I don't know. But I can tell you this, life is not found there. And the more that you are deceived into thinking that life is found there, the more you will become wrapped around the axle and you will not worship God fully. Parents, I want to talk to you. Obsess about your kids much? Look, I always say this, Tracy is a wonderful wife, but she makes a lousy God. I can be a wonderful husband at times, right, honey? Yeah. But I make a lousy God. And I don't, I don't want Tracy to worship me. My flesh does. But my spirit doesn't. I have some great kids, but they make lousy gods. Can I tell you something? Parenting is not for cowards. Anybody say amen? <laughs> Parenting will take everything 
every ounce of stuff you have and it will put you on your can and on your face before God regularly and readily. Anybody say amen? amen. So here's the deal. If you let your kid have your power where you're obsessing on them, then somehow you've based your identity on their well-being and you are now worshiping your child. And can I tell you something? That child is really not your child. It's God's child. He or she is God's child. So I've learned to pray things like, God, your kid has a problem. What are you going to do about your kid? You see, these statements are indicative of our struggle with worship. I remember talking to my sister on the phone, and we were talking about our shared anxieties with our children. And she said, Jeffrey, don't you know that you're only as happy as your saddest kid? And I went, oh, crap. And I laughed, and then after I hung up, I cried. Because I knew that wasn't supposed to be true about me. You see, if I am only as happy as my saddest kid, that means my eyes are in the wrong place. They're not on Jesus, the author and perfecter of my faith. Yes, I grieve with those who grieve and I rejoice with those who rejoice, but my eyes have to be focused on Jesus, the author and perfecter of my faith. You know, Bob Dylan talked about it. He said, you got to serve somebody. You may be the ambassador to England or France, and you may like to gamble, and you might like to dance, and you may be the heaviest champion of the world, and you may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it might be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Who are you serving? Have you had enough of focusing and obsessing on the people and the things of this world yet? Joshua had had enough. And he knew the two options. He said, there's only two choices. You can serve and worship these false gods, or you can serve and and worship um, the one true God. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The decision has been made. I have stepped over the line. I am done. I am done with the things of this world. So, These are things that we need to do. And we need to intentionally turn towards him and away from the world. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says, return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you. This verse should be very familiar to us at this point in time after all that we've been through recently. um, Listen, there's a little shaker tune. It's called Simple Gifts. You recognize that tune? It says, to bow and to bend, we shan't be ashamed. To turn, turn will be our delight. Till by turning, turning, we come round right. You see, um, the people that wrote this loved Jesus. And they knew that it was a gift to be simple, to be of one part, to be devoted to one God. Not all these other little gods. And they knew that it required they would turn to be turned around right. And so when we turn to Jesus, we don't do it in our own strength. We cry out to him, Lord, help me to turn to you. Give me your power to turn to you. But we pray and we adopt habits that posture us to receive the grace of God. And that's what we're going to be talking about in this series. We're going to be talking about turning to God and spending less of his money, but giving more, giving more of the things that matters most, to be used his money so we can love all together. Um, We're going to get very specific about how we mold our lives to fully worship. Look, Jesus has to become the center of our lives. Um, When Jesus was tempted, 
through Peter to, to not go to the cross. You see, Peter didn't want Jesus to go to the cross because he didn't really know what God was doing. God's word was rocking his world and it was deeply troubling him. And he didn't want Jesus to go to the cross. Like he didn't understand that at all. And so he, he says things to Jesus that try and keep him from going to the cross. And Jesus says these words to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Now, he wasn't calling Peter Satan, but he knew that Peter was being used by Satan, which any one of us can be, by the way. So um, he said, get behind me, Satan. Now, I've heard the misappropriation of this for years in the Christian community where people say the same thing. Get behind me, Satan. That's not the proper application of that verse because you and I are not Jesus. Anybody in here, Jesus? I'd love to talk to you if you are, just to convince you you're not. But the, the proper application of that verse would be to say to our temptation, tempter, get behind Jesus, Satan. That's the proper application of that. Get behind Jesus, Satan. Why? Because when we invite Jesus into everything that we wrestle with, to all the temptations of our life, he's not here on our shoulder. He needs to be here in our face. Look, if you say to Satan, get behind me, Satan, well, he can attack you better from behind than he can from the front. So the whole idea is get behind Jesus, Satan. You need to invite Jesus into every one of these conversations, into every point of temptation, and place him at the center of your life to look full into his wonderful face. To be honest with you, I've been wrestling a bit with some things in my life, and um, I usually don't lose sleep over anything, but last night I woke up at 1.30 in the morning with a growth opportunity. I was obsessing on something in my life. And lo and behold, I'm talking about this this morning. It's not a coincidence. This is God allowing this to happen. Why? So he's shaking me so that whatever can remain is only those things that cannot be shaken. So I get up and I try and work it out in my own strength. By the way, whenever you wrestle with an evil presence in your own strength, you endow it with power. Don't do that. Go to Jesus. Invite him in and place him at the center. So I woke up with obsessive thoughts about people in my life and I couldn't go back to sleep and I tried to wrestle with them. And then I remembered, oh yeah, let me invite Jesus into this. So I invited Jesus into this and I put him between me and these people and I let him speak to me in prayer, through his word and through his spirit. Can I tell you something? When I looked into his face, right away I started changing inside. But he said beautiful things to me. And he said, Jeff, you're not strong enough to change this person. Jeff, you are not strong enough to bear this pain. Only I can do that for you. Jeff, let it go. Let me have it. I'm capable. I love you. Let it go. Let it go. And so I'm on my knees at 1.30 in the morning and I'm praying and I'm here, Jesus saying this to me. And guess what's happening? There's water washing over my soul. The Holy Spirit is setting me free once again. I'm looking full into his wonderful face and I'm hearing Jesus speak to me. And you know what happens? I get up, I go back to bed and I sleep for a glorious another four hours. Praise the Lord. You know what the old hymn says, right? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You sing that with me again. 
Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim. In the light of his glory and grace. It's true. It's true if you focus on him and all that you say and do. The things of this world will take their proper perspective. You see, he wants us to invite us fully into this conspiracy, (laughs) this harmony with him in such a way that he sets us free, but then he uses us to help other people find him. So this is what I want to challenge you to do this week. I don't want you to get all geared up and walk out of here and say, damn the torpedoes, I'm making Advent different because you will fall flat on your face. That's not what I'm telling you to do. What I'm telling you to do is listen fully to him. Try and move closer to worshiping him fully. Take the next right step. Pray, 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 pray. And let him lead you one step at a time into surrender. Now look, whenever you take a step of surrender to him, I believe something good happens. And when something good happens, what you really need to do is tell the story to someone else and point out. It's really that simple. Can I tell you the story of our Christmases past have been very beautiful? But Tracy and I, we, when we raised our kids, we, oh, God's extravagant. We'll be extravagant with our children too. Now we weren't buying the brand new cars. Don't get all upset. But, but what we did is we would make the lists and we would go, okay, uh, Zach has this, Michaela has this, Noah has this. And how much are we going to spend? And we'd start with this particular number. And then what would happen? We'd go, oh, it's out of balance. Michaela needs one more. Oh, there's no, oh my gosh, but I don't know if that's really fair over here. And then what we're doing is we're like upping this thing. Anybody with me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. As if somehow our love for them is going to be shown through what we buy them and how much we spend. Now, by the grace of God, I think they got sick of that before we did. And we went through a renovation of the heart. We went through a revolution with Jesus last year when we, when we started believing that our job was different. And so we worshiped throughout the season more by focusing on Jesus. We spent time with each other before Christmas Day. We visited with friends more. We bought gifts that were thoughtful and had meaning from fair trade establishments like 10,000 villages. We gave each of our families, the new families, the married couples, we gave them laundry baskets that were made out of recycled saris by women who were saved from the sex slave trade. See, there was a story connected to the gift, and the gift was traced back to someone who had a need. That's different than buying plastic things at Walmart. We bought presents like chickens and you know, cows, not for people, but we bought them from these alternative gift-giving catalogs. And there are some of those available to you today as you walk out. We listened to worship music more. We prayed more. We turned our eyes upon Jesus. And we did look more fully in his face. We didn't do it perfectly, but can I tell you this? We made progress. And sometimes the Lord just wants you to make a little course correction by like three degrees. You know, if you're a plane or you're in a plane and you start in California and you will start on one course, if, you, if you're planning on going to New York and you just correct your course by like two degrees, you're going to end up in Canada. You end up in a whole different place if you trust Jesus just to take the next right step of surrender and then tell your story.
How do we know all this about Mary? How do we know what happened to her? Look, this all happened alone. She was with God, with an angel alone. How do we know specifically what the angel said to her? You're like, what's written down in the word of God? How did it get written down in the word of God? She told someone. She told someone the story that made her look weak and God strong. If you look throughout the scripture, the scripture is filled with people of God who tell the stories of their weakness and God's great strength. God is a deliverer. She told the story that God might be glorified through her. And we need to do the same. Our conspiracy is one of light and illumination rather than hiding in darkness. And if we live lives that are confessional and real before God and before our fellows, we will usurp the powers of darkness by the grace of God that want us to live our lives in hiding and in fear. And we will indeed allow God's love to overcome our fear and our weaknesses so that he might be glorified. Folks, let's point up together. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would redeem Advent and Christmas for us this year. Help us to join you in your great conspiracy by bringing glory to your name. Help us, Lord, to worship you fully, to spend less on the things that don't matter and to give what matters most. And Lord, help us to stay and wake in you so we can love all that we have the honor of being with, just as you love us. We pray this all in the precious name of Jesus Christ and God's people said. Amen. Let's stand together and close with one foot. We hope you enjoyed this message. You can find more like it on our website under sermons. To keep up to date with our sermon series, hit the subscribe button in your podcast host and follow our social media pages. Just search for GFC Shrewsbury on the platform of your choice. If you're looking to connect with us further, then you can email us at connect at gfcshrewsbury.org. We will be back next week with another message. We hope to see you again soon.